Welcome, Rahul. Hope you're doing well. Hello, hello. Yeah, um, I mean, personally, like the viewers will notice that I knew you, you know, since elementary school. So to see how you've grown and come about, um, I, I feel personally feel like your your journey was very exciting, you know, to get to where you are now. Um, but I'm, and I'm sure the viewers would love to uh, listen in and learn uh, a little bit more from you. So uh, I think a good starting place would probably be from college. Like you can give us a background of what you studied and you know what you did straight after college. Okay, sure. So just a first a disclaimer, uh, the following story is gonna be extremely incoherent. So uh, try to forgive me for that. But um, <laughs> going back to the question, college. So uh, I, have, I was born in New York and was raised for most of my life in New Jersey. And uh, I ended up going to Rutgers University here in Jersey. And uh, there I wanted to focus on environmental sciences as my major. And uh, throughout the journey, I also, the journey that is of undergrad studies, I was also interested in a bunch of other topics. Um, one of them being my long time passion of Japanese. Uh, and college gave me the opportunity to finally study that in a structured way. Um, and Japanese is going to probably come up a lot uh, in the following parts of my story. Um, and also philosophy, uh, which is something I discovered pretty late in my college um, career. But both the Japanese and philosophy I took on as minors. So overall, I studied environmental science as my major, philosophy and Japanese as my minor. Um, so yeah, already very <laughs> incoherent, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I did for, for my four years. Where do you feel like, so you, you just mentioned three completely different, you know, branches of study, right? Environmental sciences, philosophy, yeah. Japanese. Yeah. How do you feel like that love or passion for these topics started? Is it kind of simultaneous? Did one lead into the other? Or are they all just kind of different facets of your life that you enjoyed? Um, I would say it's the last, the latter statement, where they are all kind of different parts of my life that I <laughs> enjoy and that I'm very curious about. I'm, I, I like to learn about different things, um, and I tend to have uh, more passions than I have time to pursue. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, that was the same case for environmental sciences, Japanese and philosophy as well. Um, I guess even during college, I tried to find a relationship between these three very different subjects. And I suppose um, environmental sciences and philosophy probably have the greatest uh, sort of link, um, where in environmental sciences, a lot of my colleagues would be studying um, very technical issues um, and uh, sort of more of the, you could say, hard sciences of engineering, um, and a lot of sort of experimentation where I was more focused on the social aspect um, and understanding human environment relations, um, climate change and its impact to society was probably uh, is, is a kind of broad way of summarizing um, what it is that drove my thesis research. Um, so yeah, overall, uh, I would say philosophy and studying that really helped uh, enrich my understanding of environmental sciences as well. Um, but Japanese, yeah, Japanese, I guess, is just completely unrelated to both of them. Yeah. So then what kind of led you to decide to major in environmental sciences specifically, rather than saying, hey, my core focus is going to be Japanese, or my core focus is going to be philosophy? Right. Um, I suppose you could say that in high school, I... I was, I guess you could say I was a very typical high schooler where I was going into college and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to study in, in university. Um, but right around the time I graduated high school, I uh, got into this environmental club. <laughs> I forget the name of the club, but uh, basically we would be picking up trash in like the senior parking lot, et cetera. And uh, that got me curious about um, you know, our relationship with nature. Um, and also around our time uh, were, you know, the conversation of climate change or global warming, um, although very, I guess, different topics, but I'll get into that later. 
um, that that was um, something that would come up a lot in science class, and um, I thought that that was, and I still do believe that that is the greatest, largest issue that we face uh, as a humanity. And uh, for some reason, I really wanted to tackle this huge, gigantic problem. Um, so yeah, I guess you could say naivety is what got me into environmental sciences. Um, but also the just the overall, you know, deep down desire to study something that could help people. Um, and that really motivated me, uh, even in master's, uh, which I could talk about later, um, where I studied the environment once again, um, was a desire to do something that could contribute positively to, to society. Gotcha, gotcha. That's crazy, man. And so then kind of walk me through the steps that you took then. So you studied environmental sciences, philosophy, yep. Japanese. Yeah. Did you do kind of after college then? Did you kind of start working right out the gate? Did you have internships throughout college? And then, you know, give us the whole story on like your movement to Japan and everything. <laughs> yes. So um, during college, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I studied, uh, I was very focused on research. Um, and research was my passion, uh, especially come junior years where I started working on my thesis. Um, but in doing so, I then had this long-term vision of one day uh, pursuing a PhD. Um, I just didn't have a very concrete path of like, I'm gonna graduate and then apply to a bunch of things, a bunch of universities uh, for my graduate studies. Um, instead, I wanted to focus on, um, you know, while young, pursuing this other dream that I had, <laughs> which is going to Japan. Um, in some way, shape, or form, I wanted to go to Japan ever since I was 13 years old. Um, and once I became, what, 22, I thought, uh, and I was graduating college, I thought this was the perfect time for me to go to Japan and just to see, uh, test the waters in Japan and see what life is like there. Um, com once again, completely unrelated um, to everything that I studied hitherto. But, um, yeah, I went to Japan after college. Uh, at first, it was a study abroad program that lasted for two months. It's called the Critical Language Scholarship Program. Um, it's funded by the U.S. State uh, Department of State. I highly recommend any listeners and interested in foreign languages to check out this great program. And uh, with it, I was able to study in Japan, uh, live my dream, uh, for two months and I got to live with a host family and uh, also live on my own with a couple of other um, program members um, and so I got to live that dream and at the same time uh, meet my girlfriend um, at the time uh, during the program so that once I went back to the States I thought you know well <laughs> I got this relationship thing going on and uh, I really enjoyed my time in Japan and yet I feel like two months wasn't enough to really understand uh, the culture that I've been so curious about since middle school. So uh, I decided to just, you know, go with the flow and to start applying for jobs in Japan. Um, and uh, yeah, the thing is, it's not so easy to find a technical job, like right off the bat. And also, you know, with my background in research, uh, you know, social sciences, um, I didn't really have the technical skill set to say, hey, you know, um, I could do X, Y, and Z for your company. Like I just, I didn't have that pitch. So instead I decided to teach English in Japan. And uh, I did that for a year and a half, you could say. Um, and I taught English in private conversation schools with adults mostly, uh, as well as for an entire year um, in a junior high school and elementary school. Um, so, in the public school, I had almost 900 students uh, or more, actually, uh, that I would see um, every, at least every month, I would see, yeah, almost a thousand students. So <laughs> um, that must yeah. be a career experience in itself. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, I had never really worked uh, a full time job until then. So, yeah, I'm in a foreign country, the only foreigner in the school. And uh, yeah, I was teaching English, which, <laughs> I mean, I love English, uh, I love writing, but I never 
I didn't know how to teach. So that was, yeah, all of it was really an experience itself. So, how, so this was kind of like your first major full-time job, right? I can yeah. imagine having 900 students is like crazy. Uh, yeah. You're in a foreign country, obviously you minored in Japanese, so I'm pretty sure you were at least conversational and you could get along and, you know, speak with your colleagues and your staff. But then how did, how did you make that jump to become a teacher, right? Like you mentioned no teaching experience whatsoever. How did you prep lesson plans? Was there like training that the school gave you? Or, you know, what, what's the whole background there? Uh, fortunately, there was abundant training. Um, of course, when you first start out, it's, um, you, you just have no idea what you're doing. So, <laughs> um, so the first few lessons were pretty sloppy for a while. Um, and then they got better and better and better. Um, but yeah, thankfully, we had uh, a lot of training, uh, abundant training to at least give us some sort of anchoring in the beginning. But uh, yeah, very different from everything I've done. I did do some childcare uh, as part-time work in the States before that. So I did have some experience with children, but uh, nothing of the sort of structured format that's required in teaching. So, yeah. I'm so curious about this because it's like, hey, I'm graduating high school, I'm graduating college, and all of a sudden, like, hey, I just moved to Japan. And let me just take on this job in this field that I have no background in. Yeah. Right? Were, you, were there like any moments of like anxiety or like were you like, holy shit, oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And you just yeah. like trudging through and eventually you're like, hey, you know, I'm making things work. Right. Um, yeah, I guess uh, there were, there was anxiety. Uh, quite a lot, actually, you could say. Um, I think my decision to go to Japan and teach English is a very common uh, sort of path that many people who are interested in Japan take, actually. Um, like there's the JET program where you can work as an assistant language teacher um, in Japanese public schools. Um, I actually was working on a different program, and uh, especially when I first started teaching uh, conversational English with adults. Um, I could share those resources with, if listeners are curious. Um, but yeah, I just I just wanted to go to Japan, so that's <laughs> that's what I did. And um, teaching English was the quick and dirty path of getting there. Um, I don't mean dirty in any offensive way, because I've met so many great teachers along the way, and I have a lot of respect for them. Um, but for me, it didn't directly connect to anything I'd studied, um, nor did it directly connect to anything I was, you know, intrinsically passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there was doubt. There was a lot of doubt of what am I doing <laughs> teaching English? Like, uh, this is not what I want to do. Um, it was fun. Like there were great moments with some of my students, but it was stressful because it's not something that I could say that, you know, I really want to teach English. I really love kids. I kind of don't, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, um, there was, there were moments where I thought, you know, I can't do this forever and I need to find another path for myself, um, which is what led me to the next chapter in Japan where I decided to pursue a master's degree. Um, so, you know, going backward to <laughs> uh, once I graduated college, I wanted to pursue the PhD and I thought that, well, I'm in Japan. I don't like my current job of teaching English, so I'm just going to pursue part of this long-term goal of getting a PhD and get a master's. Um, which brought me to Kyoto University, where I studied for two years to get a master's in uh, global environmental studies or environmental management, I guess you could say. Once again, very theoretical research, uh, actually even more theoretical <laughs> than a lot of the stuff I did in my undergrad. Um, but yeah, I spent two years in Kyoto. Uh, previously, I was in Shiga, which is close to Kyoto, but yeah, now I was in Kyoto. Uh, the old capital of Japan, so a lot of uh, great places to visit for anyone who's curious about Japan. Mm -hmm. What spurred you to stay in Japan? Was it just like the love of the lifestyle, love of the culture, again, your love for Japanese? Why not go to grad school like outside of the country or even come back to the States or potentially like in Europe? Right. Um, that's a great question because, you know, I had done you know, a lot of research on great grad school programs. A lot of them, of course, based here in the States. 
Um, I mean, our education, I can say this also, having done my graduate studies in Japan, I would say the education in the States is top notch. Um, and uh, even in, in Europe, there are some very great and enticing programs there that I wanted to pursue. Um, but for me, I was, uh, I, I did enjoy my life in Japan. I'm not gonna lie, there were a lot of, a lot of struggles and I'm <laughs> willing to get into some of that, you could say, culture shock or some of the friction that I had with my sort of Western American thinking uh, versus Japanese thinking. Um, but that aside, you know, I also had, uh, you know, my uh, relationship going on at the time. So that was, I'm not going to lie, that was a big motivation for me to stay there. Um, but yeah, I think um, deep down, I did like life in Japan and coming back to the States after four years of living there. Yeah, I could say there was a lot that I did like about it. What yeah. advice do you have to some of our listeners today who are a, about to kind of take the plunge uh, and go to a foreign country, uh, either when they're in you know college or right after college, and B, kind of those pursuing an education in a separate country as well? I would say be prepared for clashes with what you have held as being correct and right, uh, your traditions versus the traditions of the place, the thinking of the place that you're going to. Um, and that's not only the local culture, that's also could be the institution that you're going to study at if you decide to do grad studies there. Um, for Japanese culture in particular, is very, very different from uh, Western culture, especially American culture. Um, people are more conservative about many things, whether it's their opinions, their fashion, um, and just, you know, their relationships with each other. Um, and also their observance of rules. I remember that, that last point being something that kind of bothered me <laughs> uh, at first, where people, you know, tend to kind of follow any rule that's established and uh, just kind of follow the herd instinct um, <laughs> as much as they can, uh, often to maintain peace, which something that bothered me um, as an American that values individuality um, and non-conformity, so the polar opposite. Um, but, you know, after many years uh, and being humbled by <laughs> the law of the land, I uh, grew to respect it. Um, and so, yeah, I would say if you're going abroad, whether it's to travel, but especially for a long-term stay, um, keep an open mind and be ready to challenge yourself. Um, and uh, you'll grow better out of it, I think. Yeah. You get your graduate degree and yeah. you're still in Kyoto. What's next? Do you find internship during that summer? And like, do you start work? Do you come back to the States or like what, what happened there? So, uh, once again, there was a lot of a lot of different things going on at the same time. I uh, one of the rude awakenings I had in doing my masters was that I was not at a place to accept, um, you know, academia overall uh, as an overall institution where. You know, I was uh, publishing research that I wasn't too sure if it would actually make any impact. Um, I mean, just to remind everybody, I wanted to study something that I thought can, you know, positively contribute to the issues that um, we're facing, um, you know, as uh, humankind. And I felt that, you know, as an academic, it's intellectually, of course, satisfying because, you know, you get to sit down, you know, research about cool topics that I mean, you think are cool. Um, but that might not actually, you know, do much in the, you know, big picture. Wait, wait, the, wait. Yeah. Give me like an example there. Okay. Um, so the stuff I was researching, for example, um, I was researching about very theoretical economic stuff. <laughs> um, I guess to put it more concretely without confusing listeners. <laughs> was that I was looking into the uh, vegan uh, movement in America and uh, seeing how 
industry was often um, trying to hamper efforts by uh, sort of grassroots movements to change the U.S. dietary guidelines. And uh, basically, these grassroots movements were trying to reduce the recommended uh, intake of dairy and meat and eggs and fish. Um, whereas, of course, that's against the vested interest of companies. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to see the influence of industry in policymaking, essentially, you could say. Now, the problem with this kind of research was that this was more sort of descriptive rather than, you know, prescriptive. Um, I was sort of, in a sense, diagnosing a problem without actually offering a solution. And you could say that's maybe the fault of my research methodology. Um, but I found that a lot of sort of colleagues that I had met, um, both in Japan and also in other places, uh, such as Taiwan, where I did a short internship in, um, people kind of faced this same inner struggle where they enjoyed what they're doing of researching, but they weren't too confident that what they're researching actually made a difference. Uh, so they might put things on a petri dish and observe the issues. Um, and maybe those issues helped them with their research, but they weren't sure if the research actually helped those issues, um, if you get what I mean. But I would almost argue that observ observing and diagnosing the problem is the first step towards a solution, right? So like, for example, we all know that Americans, for example, consume you know, way too much red meat and more often than not have like a poor diet, right? Mm -hmm. And so even though we know this, there's not been any like concrete study that explicitly shows, or, you know, there probably have been, but you get my point here, um, that explicitly shows, hey, this is actually a fundamental problem, right? And only from that research can we base a conclusion, right? So I would almost still argue that the research that you're doing is still important, but it's just like that first baby step towards working towards long-term change, right? Do you feel right. like some of the scientists and the colleagues that you work with, they got like depressed after realizing that? Do you feel like they got jaded? Or do you feel like they were starting to work towards that next step? It was just like much harder uh, to envision. Because I can imagine like the, the conclusions or recommendations here, for example, like how do you change an American's diet, right? Like that's a tantamount like crazy issue to try to solve, right? That probably takes like, you know, a very long time to solve, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just like a lifestyle change, but it's almost like an economic change, like you mentioned, yeah. right? You know, the industry will need to change. And that's like every level, like governmental, yeah. individual consumer behavior, et cetera, et cetera, right? So curious to hear your thoughts on that. Right, that's a very good question. Um, and uh, something I've thought about before as well, of course. Um, but I, the one, the, the issue is, you know, in, in making, impactful research um it takes time you know it takes time and also making those connections with uh people that are directly related to policy um that kind of network takes a lot of time to develop and in between doing that you have you're pressured uh by institutions technically usually um to publish research right um, whether it is that you are trying to graduate a master's program or phd program but also to achieve tenure I'm in an academic institution, um, you're often forced to publish. And there's usually some sort of quota, uh, depending on the institution. Um, now, getting into a university and working as a professor, uh, like working in sort of the faculty of any department is hard enough as a hurdle um, because, you know, just the competition, the sheer competition is so intense and it's growing more intense as more people get PhDs. Um, and as more people get PhDs, there's harder and harder opportunity to find originality, which is imp extremely important. It's important to the creator, but it's also important to the people who are going to publish <laughs> uh, any sort of research. So there's this sort of paradox where, you know, more research is good. Um, at the same time, though, it's hard to find impactful research, right? Mm. Um, and it reaches the eyes of somebody who can actually do something about it. because. Our audience uh, in publishing these sort of articles, they it's hardly ever the you know the common public, right? 
it's not going to be you know you know joe the plumber it's going to be um someone who has a like-minded perspective of the world um and who's going to say oh yeah yeah this is interesting and then <laughs> hopefully publish my research mm -hmm. so you know as someone who's trying to move up the the ladder uh, professionally speaking in, in academia i kind of have this selfish um intention of you know, changing my research or specifically picking a topic that is, you know, appealing to a journal, for example. Um, and sometimes I feel like our articles are just going in circles because we're constantly writing to each other, it seems like, um, and not to the people who can either change policy or, you know, the consumer who can change their lifestyle um, and actually implement some sort of democratic change. Um, so I think that, yeah, you know, there's, there is definitely opportunity for a researcher to make an impact in the system, uh, but it depends on their angle. If they're just going to focus on specifically academia and be happy in their ivory tower, then that's obviously terrible. On the other hand, if they have an angle towards activism and uh, using what they're studying um, as a way of connecting with the masses, um, then that's obviously great. Um, but it takes some time to, I think, reach that position where you can do that. And I wasn't too sure if I was ready for that in the long haul because there's a lot <laughs> to slog through before getting there. And uh, increasingly, it's just more and more of a quagmire where <laughs> um, you're just forced to do a lot more to achieve something. So um, my question is, did you, all this self-reflecting, is this like towards the end of your um graduate studies at Kyoto University, was that when you thought, okay, well, you know, I'm not quite ready yet, but maybe it's time to find a nine to five sort of uh, job? Yeah, I would say it was after my first year, I was kind of disillusioned uh, by the system, <laughs> by the man. <laughs> uh, There's a lot of sort of politics I got myself involved in in the school because <laughs> I was quite the radical, uh, I'm not going to go too much into it, but I uh, I didn't like how things were run, and uh, especially in Japanese uh, educational system, um, there was not much room for a change um, or any sort of progress. But I'm not going to go into that. Uh, instead, yes, I found out that I wasn't happy with what I was doing. Um, I was facing these very serious doubts, almost you could say an existential crisis, where <laughs> this is something that I had planned out from undergrad, and here I am in grad school almost to the PhD stage, um, doubting and doubting my methods of uh, making positive change. Um, and that's where, uh, I, you know, a lot of my colleagues, they were wise in that they chose something more technical. Um, like, for example, in environmental sciences, um, one of the technologies that we use is GIS, or uh, Geographic Information Systems. Um, and that's used for like Google Maps and stuff, and often for um, environmental research as well. And so they got into that, um, which is a great skill. I had no technical skills, so I was in quite the pickle <laughs> once I came to this realization that I was not ready or cut out for academia. Um, and uh, yeah, at first, uh, I decided I would go with my passions again. <laughs> I just tend to follow my gut. That's who I am as a person. And uh, I decided I would uh, instead pursue uh, personal training as a career. And uh, for some time, I studied sports sciences with great, you know, great fervor and <laughs> great passion. And uh, I was able to pass the NSCA CPT exam. So I became certified as a personal trainer. Um, but as it turned out, it was quite tough to find a job in Japan as a personal trainer. Um, and that too, as a foreigner. Um, so I had to give that up and go back to the sciences again. And <laughs> um, here, once again, I decided to change paths and go into computer sciences, where I decided to study programming um, and uh, make something out of that. And I was lucky to find a job um, in a software, in a hardware design company and uh, make use of that programming experience. So. Yeah.
that was like a thousand miles an hour. So many changes, kind of one after another. I, I think it's you know, a great deal of courage to be able to kind of move your life trajectory like that, right? Like you know, you kind of just kind of recap. You go through life sciences, you go through grad school, and you're like, hey, you know, this academic research is not necessarily for me. And that's more or less a byproduct of the systemic approach that academia has, has taken rather than my like life philosophical approach to life sciences. So you're like, okay, I'm done with this. Let me do personal training, which is again on another whole 180 on the spectrum. And then your, you know, unfortunate restrictions around there for your life in Japan. And then you're like, okay, let me pivot again into uh, comp sci. So I feel like for our listeners here, you know, this is a very good example of, you know, when you enter university or when you enter the job force, it's okay to not necessarily know 100% what you want to do. And don't be afraid to pivot away from a certain job if it doesn't fulfill either certain requirements or you or once you get in you're like hey this is not actually you know the golden or rosy dream uh that i always thought it would be so ruffle how, how was kind of the experience of penetrating a completely different market like for example i can imagine someone out of uh looking for a programmer reading your resume they're like uh, life sciences, uh, grad school, came from the U.S., uh, was a school trainer, and then now he's a programmer? Like, what's going on there? How were you able to convince people, like, in the interview that, like, hey, I know what I'm doing. I'm not just, like, dabbling around every couple of years. Trust me, and let's, let's move forward, and I'll show you what I can do. Right. So, uh, excellent question. Um, yeah, I would say my resume <laughs> is definitely not something that anybody should emulate. <laughs> Because this is definitely a very difficult conversation to have. And every time I step into an interview, I am always, I'm always, I try to prepare myself for the question of why do you keep jumping around? And I think if you're going to jump around, then you better have a very, very good reason to do so, number one. And uh, number two, if you are trying to penetrate a different market, then you really, really need to do the research. You owe it to yourself to do the research of exactly what skills do you need to get there. Um, and you need to do the studying on your own time. And uh, it's so the thing about college and post-college is that college is great because you kind of have this sort of structured curriculum. You know exactly what textbooks you need, um, which of course we hate buying, but which are important. <laughs> and, uh, this sort of trajectory for um, what sort of knowledge base you will need in order to say that you qualify for your degree, right? But after that, if you are curious for doing something else, then you have the freedom to do so. You just need the discipline. And you need to be able to say to yourself that, you know, hey, I'm not in college anymore, but I do have the ability to structure my day-to-day -day schedule and give it and you know make the study time to get to where I want to be. And that's always been the conversation that I had with myself. So even for personal training, for example, um, I took that very seriously. And you know when I was demotivated for my research for my degree, I said to myself, well, you know if I'm not motivated to do research, then I'm going to spend my time studying you know, personal training and I'm going to be an expert. I'm going to study it to the very depths, right? Um, and so I'm very detail-oriented in, in my learning. I tend to go for depth rather than, you know, breadth, you could say, where I want to understand the details uh, as far as I can um, and do the research about the topics that I don't understand um, and get into conversations, um, you know, whether it's in my head or with people who are interested in a similar topic um, so that I can keep enriching the dialogue that I could present in an interview. Um, same thing I had to go through when I went into computer science. Because, you know, I knew how to do GIS. I knew how to work computers and, you know, Microsoft Word and PowerPoint. Um, but going into Python and going into C, the programming language C, um, yeah, that was a completely different world to me. But I, I just 
did the same exact method that I did with personal training. I wanted to know exactly what I didn't know and then spend whatever time I had to understand what I didn't know. Um, and just gradually diminish and chip away at my ignorance, basically, you could say. Um, I would say one of the other things that really helped me was studying language. Um, because I am passionate for Japanese, but I've also studied some other languages along the way. Uh, my family is actually from India. Uh, and so at home growing up, I studied Bengali. In elementary school up to high school, I studied Spanish. Um, college, I did Japanese. And then after college, I did Chinese for a little bit, um, a little bit of Mandarin. Uh, still nowhere uh, where I want to be yet. Um, but in doing so, what I realized was that classwork is not enough to get to native level, right? You're not going to be a native Japanese speaker just by going to your university classes, unfortunately. Of course, I strongly recommend you go to university classes if you want to get anywhere with Japanese or any other language. But at the end of the day, you have to put in the time whenever you can. You have to immerse yourself. Uh, it's the same with language learning, and I found that's the same with anything you want to learn. You want to do personal training, you got to surround yourself with personal training. If it's, you know, programming, you got to surround yourself and make that environment where you're constantly immersed in programming. Um, and that's what I did for myself. So, um, yeah. Um, regarding when you said surrounding yourself with, you know, resources, would you say having some sort of like physical mentor, you know, speed up the process in terms of um, getting a little bit more proficiency in this certain topic? Um, so like a change of mindset, you mean, or? Um, more like, okay, you found somebody, I remember you, when you told me about personal training, there was actually a gym trainer that gave you the rundown of, you know, how he got to where he is and how he opened his gym. Like when oh, you yeah. say like trying to reach out, find somebody, and I'm not saying to find them on social media, but maybe through a different, any sort of network, um, you know, try to make yourself available and flexible, you know, to the learnings of another person instead mm -hmm. of just going online and searching, Googling it, you know, per se only. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that goes for anything is that you always want to gravitate towards those people who, of course, know what they're doing and the thing that you want to know. <laughs> so for me, yeah, for personal training too, I did go out of my way and contact um, people that I saw on YouTube. Uh, a Japanese personal trainer that was talking about, you know, how to study for the NSCA CPT exam. I sent him an email and I said, you know, I'm really passionate about personal training and, you know, I really want to be a personal trainer in Japan. And, uh, you know, the great thing was that he really responded to that. He, uh, it resounded within my passion. And so he was kind enough to really give me a long detailed explanation of what the process is like, what you need to know for the exam and uh, just in general, what it's like to work as a personal trainer in Japan. And that really helped me tremendously. Um, and same too with programming, uh, another very different field where I, at that time when I was learning, I gravitated towards my friends who had actually gone through university and studied computer sciences. Um, and, you know, just find those people who are passionate about it. Um, and just keep constantly talking about the new technologies and then all the stuff that I was learning and getting their feedback. Um, even if I'm not showing them, for example, my code, just getting them talking about it and getting their experience maybe uh, at their workplace um, gave me um, and you know some sort of context for what I should be doing. So, yeah, I would say community is definitely important, um, even if it's a small community with you and another person. I would say that's more than enough to keep yourself motivated and also um, give you some sort of guidance. So let's kind of keep moving forward along the timeline then. So you do this deep dive into CompSci, you learn program, and then you get hired by this Japanese company to become yeah. a programmer. How, how did experience intertwine with you know, your lifelong life sciences as well as all your other interests when yeah. you start that job where you're like hey i'm probably just going to be a program for the rest of my life or was it hey maybe i want to jump back into life sciences at some point or yeah. was this the means to an end right uh for me it was at first a means to an end 
I would say, um, because I was desperate to stay in Japan. <laughs> um, and I was lucky to find this company that works in technology. Actually, in this sort of chicken versus egg question of, you know, was it the company or was it your inner interest in programming that got you into technology? It was actually the company that hired me first. Um, the company was interested in, in me because I knew English and they had some clients overseas. Um, mm -hmm. And at first, my role was going to be more sort of the um, business-oriented, uh, you could say almost um, project management uh, assistant kind of thing at first, um, and more business-oriented. And getting into the company, I thought, well, I'm going into a tech company, so I might as well learn programming because, you know, tech and programming, right? So <laughs> I decided to go with that. Um, and I came in there realizing that I was super passionate about programming, but there was nothing related to software in the company besides whatever software they used to design the circuit boards that they were actually selling to their clients. Um, and uh, so I was in a very interesting position where they had a very different perspective for, for trajectory for what they wanted me to do um, you know, after a few months of time. I wanted to do something more technical and still keep refining my technical skills. Mm -hmm. uh, not to say that you know in business there aren't skills, but I was just more curious about software. So I once again I kept my philosophy of creating this environment uh, that can enrich the skills that you wanted to to work on. And so I came into the company kind of almost <laughs> selfishly, where I kept promoting myself. Of, hey, you know, I know how to program and I can use this to automate some of the work that we had going on there. And I just kept talking about programming and kept talking about programming to people related to the IT stuff. Um, and I was lucky because <laughs> finally something stuck and people were like, okay, fine, let's get this new <laughs> working on some of our automation stuff. Um, so. For me, it was the timing because the company was also trying to automate its stuff. And mm -hmm. Python is a great language that I knew and that was capable of automating stuff very well. So I said, you know, let's go with Python. And uh, I made it my mission to understand Python so I could teach other people how to use Python. Um, and uh, in doing so, I got better at Python. I got better at programming. And I was able to, you know, find a very unique position with myself uh, for myself in this company where you know, I didn't know anything about semiconductors or, you know, circuits. Yeah. I did a little bit of that in physics, but <laughs> I wasn't very good at electromagnetism. Um, so, um, yeah, that's uh, that's basically what happened. Um, that's uh, I found a sort of niche for myself within this company. And uh, that's what got me through it for uh, nine months. I did that until I had to move back to the States. Um, and uh, pursue something once again different here <laughs> uh, in the states. Yeah. So um, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> it did. You know, I, I think again we're just trying to give our our listeners some more context here about you know what, what drives some of this change, uh, both yeah. in your career as well as how you feel you know philosophically about life. Right. You know, right. obviously career encompasses uh, a large portion of our lives. Uh, yeah. But we also need to keep in mind like what, what our life goals are, right? Um, right? I think it's important to always reflect back on, hey, is this career move the right step for longer? Right. Yeah. I, I think remembering part of your question too was that I have an idea of connecting this back to the environment somehow. I do. Uh, I do. I wanted to understand tech. Um, and yet, of course, I'm still passionate about the environment. It's not like, oh, well, you know, he's turned his back on the environment completely. Uh, hopefully people don't think that, but um, how I'm going to connect tech back to the environment is still something I have yet to understand. Um, and I, right now in my career, I want to get better at technology. I want to understand software in particular because I just think software is so cool. And uh, software, of course, surrounds us. Um, you know, as with any technology, but software is just so critical to our eco economy nowadays as well. And so I really want to get a better grasp of what software is. 
Um, and somehow in the future, yeah, use that um, uh, for environmental uh, solutions as well, whether it's climate change or some other environmental problem that we're facing. Um, also going back uh, to something you just mentioned, yeah, I think what motivated me too in studying technology was, I'm not going to lie, this sort of financial or economic benefit that comes with, you know, working in the tech industry. Um, I had heard rumors that, you know, tech is profitable. And that's not the first motive. I'm going to say that right off the bat before people say I'm a seller. <laughs> that's not the first motive. Um, but I was at a place in grad school where I was dirt broke. I had no money. Um, and I really struggled through grad school because I had no scholarship. I was completely self-funded. Um, and there was a point in grad school where I was working like seven part-time jobs at the same time. Um, some of them were kind of self, you could say entrepreneurial stuff where I was teaching, you know, I was doing personal training and helping my you know, classmates, you know, get a training re regimen going on. And so I was tired of that. I, I wanted a better and more stable income. So I said to myself, well, I don't have any technical skills, but technology is something where I could develop technical skills and maybe one day apply it to the environment. So that's basically what kept me going, uh, I would say, uh, in, in my journey of understanding computer science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good kind of tied together. So then you worked at, as a programmer in Japan for effectively nine months, and then you come back to the States and give us the rundown of what's happened here as you move back to America then. Right. So in this crazy part of my journey, uh, I came to this sort of deep philosophical understanding about life where we don't have control over all the events in your life. So I was very fortunate as a you know 20-year-old graduating college where I was able to do all these great things um, in a foreign country. Um, absolutely blessed to have had that opportunity. Um, but there was a lot going on at home, uh, a lot going on in my family, which was still based in the States. Um, I had journeyed off to Japan um, on my own uh, after graduating college, but there was still a lot of stuff going on at home that I had to deal with. And uh, at some point, I just, there was no question that I had to return back to the States. And so I had to leave everything. I left my girlfriend, I left my company, I left the sort of aspirations of a career of technology kind of behind me um, and came back to the States. Now, I, I knew that, you know, I was lucky because at this end of my journey in Japan, I had emerged with some sort of technical ability and this passion for software. So I decided that coming back here, um, I'm going to make sure that my first full-time job in the States is going to be also related to technology. So I could keep working on these skills that I've, you know, um, had started on in Japan. Um, so that got me so this right now, that would be December of 2019 that I decided to come back to the States. And uh, from there, for a couple of months, I went through the, uh, the struggle of trying to find a job. <laughs> this was uh, quite the struggle, to say the least, because I was shocked at how much rejection one person could face. <laughs> and although I, you know, it was interesting because in my company in Japan, I was very confident because I had this, you know, this niche skill. Nobody really knew Python except me, and yet this was this very exciting thing that I was working on and spearheading. Um, and here I am in, in America, where you know there's so many people who have you know great technical background that I'm competing against, and here's this noob who <laughs> didn't even study comp sci in undergrad or grad school, and uh, it's just you know a charlatan, you know, learning Python and all these other programming languages on their own. I, I guess that's that's the treatment I faced in, in the job market, or um, at least that's what my application must have faced, because I didn't receive much contact uh, from any of the maybe 200 companies or so that I applied to um, in a span of about two or three months, you could say. Um, so it was tough. 
I just kept applying every day. I just sat down, did nothing else but apply to jobs via Indeed or LinkedIn. And I had hardly heard back from any of them. Um, I was lucky, though, that I knew Japanese. And uh, whereas in whereas in Japan, I was I had this uniqueness of knowing English and Japanese. Um, here I was in America, you know, of course, native English speaker, but also knowing Japanese, which is kind of hard to find, um, at least at a professional level. So I was able to market that and got a couple of interviews here and there. And uh, I ended up working, or I'm currently working in a IT consulting company that's based in Japan, but is currently doing a, a large-scale project uh, for another Japanese bank um, here in New York. Um, so I was very, very fortunate to find this job because right after that, the coronavirus hit the States and, um, you know, the job market kind of fell apart. Um, but yeah, I would say that if I had learned something in these past few years, especially in the, in the last few years since graduating undergrad and finding a completely different profession to work on, is that you should always try to understand your uniqueness in the market. Understand how you can appeal to somebody and what are the sort of unique opportunities that you know you could use your skills. For example, in, in Japan, you know, as I mentioned, they had overseas clients and I knew both English and Japanese and made use of that. Um, I also made use of my programming ability um, to do something very interesting for the company and kind of change the company culture in some sense. Um, and then here in America, you know, a uh, native English speaker, but also at a professional level with Japanese and was very fortunate to find a job in technology again, whereas you know, I still haven't worked for an American company, um, but I imagine that the bar for doing that for me is a lot higher because I just don't have the technical ability. Um, yet the Japanese helped me uh, still maintain that career trajectory that I had done for myself. Yeah, that's a great way to kind of sum up where you're at now. I almost feel like my kind of two major takeaways from learning about your career experiences have been number one, almost like a relentless discipline, right? When we talk about having an interest or passion in a certain aspect of life or a certain major or a certain topic, whether it be, you know, physical training or, you know, environmental sciences or even comp sci, right? You need to have that inherent drive and that discipline to be able to study up and really generate that depth of knowledge uh, as you kind of go into that and explore that field. And my second takeaway here is really to kind of take advantage of your uniqueness within the market, right? Coming, going to Japan, you're probably one of the few applicants that can speak fully in English. And then similarly here, you're one of the only applicants that can fully speak Japanese, right? So I think ultimately it's okay to have a very diverse background. You just need to play to your strengths. Yeah, I, I would say that would be a great way to summarize. Uh, exactly what I've been through. Um, yeah, you, for the passion, absolutely. You definitely need to have discipline. I don't think I'll be able to uh, transition to so many different, or not even transition, more like completely switch over to different markets had it not been for my own, you know, sort of intrinsic curiosity for the topic and my devotion to understanding it as far as I can. Um, and likewise, yeah, the uniqueness is definitely an important aspect. And I think everyone has some sort of unique experiences that they can play on. Um, you know, and looking back at to, from where I am now to what I was or where I was when I graduated university, um, I had these very almost incoherent, unrelated topics that I studied. I studied the environment, I studied Japanese, and I studied philosophy. I would say the environment and studying philosophy gave me a very deep and you know uh, deep and critical understanding of uh, of how the world works essentially, or the natural world and natural sciences. That's applicable to computer science, but also the logic, uh, the not only the analytical aspect, but also the logical uh, uh, understanding or study that I did in philosophy also applies very clearly to programming. Um, so that helped me. 
And of course, even language studying like Japanese, I think, you know, understanding the syntax of a very different language gave me flexibility in understanding also computer languages as well. Um, but also, yeah, helped me find my uniqueness in the market. So somehow uh, it all kind of worked out in the end. Uh, there was a lot of entropy, so I'm very lucky to be where I am right now. Uh, but thankfully, yeah, I, I would say that I am more confident in my technical abilities now. And uh, I'm surprised that I actually even <laughs> have a real job, <laughs> despite the sort of theoretical things I was interested in back uh, in my undergrad days. I mean, I think that just goes to show, you know, especially for our listeners out there, like you can have interest in many, many broad topics. And you can love so many things, and they can all still be somewhat applicable to any career out there. You just need to find that specific niche and take advantage of your strengths. And also not forget that you know, unyielding discipline and desire to learn, and that unrelentless kind of pursuit and mastery of a certain craft. So I feel like to kind of close this out, you know, Rahul, where do you feel like your career trajectory is going to be moving forward? in the next couple of years, in the next five, 10 years, do you feel like there's gonna be a tie back to environmental sciences or do you feel like your current programming or rather project management kind of role uh, is the place to be? That's a uh, great question that I think about on a daily basis. Um, I'm actually working as a temp. So um, my contract is gonna end pretty soon in two months. So it's been a very critical uh, question that's been on my mind recently. I would say that recently I've been less focused on programming itself and more focused on the skills that I've been working on in this current job, which is more software testing, uh, especially related to financial systems. So I'm hoping that in the six months that I've worked on in this contract, um, I'll be able to emerge with a skill set that'll be, and you know, amount of experience that would be uh, appealing to a future employer. Um, hopefully I can stay on with the company that I'm working with right now. Um, but currently, yes, I'm looking into sort of business systems analysis or and or you know QA software testing. Um, and in doing so, I think it sort of once again plays to my advantages in that I have come through with this background in research. Um, and analytic thinking, but not so much in the deep computer sciences that might be more appealing to, let's say, a SaaS company or software as a serv uh, service company, or you know, a company that focuses primarily on software. Um, rather, I think the testing experiences that I've gained in the last few months is something that I'd like to uh, work on in the future, especially as I feel like it connects a lot with things that I've studied until now. So we have yet to see. Um, I might, I may or may not be slogging through the job market again uh, in the next two months, but uh, until then, I'm still working on the self-studying, still doing Coursera, and uh, I bought a whole bunch of books recently that are going to be delivered in about a few days. So, the studying never ends. <laughs> Um, so I'm just wondering, is there any, I guess, would you say like a brief, a brief, like, um, sort of, uh, advice you would like to wrap up, um, your episode with, you know, for the viewers, you know, if they were to be kind of undecided of, Hey, I don't really know what I want to do with my career, you know, after college, like, is it okay for me to, you know, just chase what I want to do and, you know, see if it works out for me? Yes, I would say absolutely. Um, now, granted, I did start off the episode by saying that I often face a difficult conversation in interviews where I have to explain my very kind of strange and hard to decipher resume with all these different things going on. Um, but at the same time, I have no regrets. Um, and I think that in, in having pursued all the things that I'm interested in, all my passions, um, I have come this far. And I think where otherwise, I don't think I'd be happy with where I am. Um, and so, I, yeah, I definitely recommend that anyone who's either entering college or entering the job force, you know, 
undecided. That's absolutely okay. Just look deep inside and try to understand exactly what you're interested in and make a game plan. Do the research because, you know, in college, you might have the coursework that might help you get through it. But once you're out of college, you won't have that helping hand. Um, so do the research, whether it's the job market or whether it's the field that you're interested in. And understand it as deeply as you can. Make that community and uh, just be prepared to keep on learning. That's what I would say. Awesome, Rahul. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We upload every other Thursday of the month. If you enjoyed the content, please follow our podcast channel. We strive to create content that would make a positive impact in your career journey. In return for our efforts, we would like to hear from you. For any suggestions, topic requests, or enlightening musings, please email contactrotm at gmail.com. We look forward to the next time you tune in for another episode.